0: friends. You're listening to Fast Forward Radio. Fast Forward Radio is an audio production of The Speculist, and you can find us online at speculist.com. That's S-P-E-C-U-L-I-S-T.com, or if you're feeling frisky and you don't mind typing an additional four characters, you can go straight to the good stuff at blog.speculist.com. At The Speculist and on Fast Forward Radio, we dare to tell the hidden truth about what's really happening in the world, the truth that the politicians and the mainstream media probably don't know about and probably wouldn't want you to know, even if they did know about it. And that truth is very simply stated that the world is getting better all the time. And more importantly, not only is the world getting better all the time, but due to a convergence of accelerating change, emerging technologies, and emerging possibilities, we stand on the brink, if we play our cards right, of a dazzlingly bright future, a future that few of us have expected or would dare even to hope or dream of. And I can assure you of this, friends, that that future, you may not have heard of it. You probably wouldn't hear of it anywhere other than on uh, Fast Forward Radio or uh, a few like-minded sites, but but it's one you're going to want to live to see. My name is Phil Bowermaster, and with me, as always, is my co-blogger, co-futurist, and co-host, Stephen Gordon. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Phil. How are you? i'm super fantastic, how are you doing
1: stephen? Well, I can tell you you 've never put, put it more succinctly or better than you just did in your introduction there phil uh that 's that 's why we do what we do and we enjoy it so much so uh, you, know,
0: you know i've been 've been working on the patter i think we got we got to get that down and in fact there 's a reason why i uh, I spent a little more time on it this week than than last, and we'll get, we'll get to that in just a minute. But before we do, I just want to check with you. Uh, how, how's your week been? Any uh, updates for us on the uh, exercise program? I know we had, we had meant to check back in with you on uh, on your plan to go a week without eating mammals. How did that work out for you?
1: Well, I think the short answer is that I tried to amend my carnivorous habit and made it nearly <laughs> seven days. <laughs> But anyway, I, uh, actually, I made it about five days uh, uh, before I had to I had to get back to uh, to eating mammals. I guess is the proper way to say that. So you,
0: you 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 were off the quadrupeds for.
2: What did you
1: say? 5 days? Yeah, about 5 days. I managed to you know what I was for the benefit of our audience, uh, I I'm on a low carb diet, which is very difficult without meat. I mean uh, to the point of impossibility, especially if you're exercising, which I'm also doing. And uh at Phil's recommendation and suggestion um and for ethical reasons, I, you know, uh, lay off the mammals. They're the higher order animals, right? And uh, I tried to do it for about and made it about five days. Uh, chicken and fish started getting pretty old, uh, After that, uh,
0: it, 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 so that wasn't working for you. So you, you finally, you had to go back. Now, how about did, did you find that it impacted the workout program, or were you able, were you able to keep going? Okay.
1: Man, I was, I was, I was exhausted. Um, For much of the week, Um, it seemed like I just wasn't getting enough nutrition from from that. Maybe I just needed to eat more chicken or something. I don't know. Eat
0: more chicken. That's what the cows always say. uh... (laughs) That's right. The cows at Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A billboards, right? Yeah. (laughs) That's right. Well, anyway, those those uh, those (laughs) mammals you didn't eat that those five days are grateful for your. uh, Uh, I guess, yeah. We we did report this week that PETA's put out a uh, a push prize for for uh growing vat uh, meat so so the day's coming soon when we'll all be able to eat meat and uh and and feel camp. good about
3: doing it yeah so, exactly that's... right we've also got with us michael darling Michael, how are you? I'm on top of the world How about yeah. I don't know if that's super fantastic, but i'm doing well
1: <laughs> oh that's correct that's
3: that's a that's a step in the right direction uh do anything interesting this weekend
1: loaded question.
3: I, uh, I coach a baseball team of young young children, most of whom have never played baseball before this year, and we won our first game today, so it was very exciting uh, for a little cluster of 8-year-old kids. Congratulations.
1: That's something, even at 8 years of age, you never forget, you know, your first win in a baseball game. I know I remember mine at that age.
0: Glad to finally report on some good sports news here. We know. <laughs> That's right. We've, we've, had, we've had such bad news. But actually, I was, but I, maybe I'll lo- load the question even better. Do anything interesting Friday evening?
3: Uh, Friday evening, I, um, I picked you up at your office, and we went to the Boulder, Colorado Future Salon. And uh, then I took you back to your office and came home. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I see
0: the future salon made quite an impression on you.
3: <laughs> uh, we we talked about things that might or might not happen in the future. I will say that <laughs>
0: indeed we did. We talked about uh, what the uh, what the speaker referred to as the astrozoic era, the coming era uh, of humanity living in space. I thought it was a very interesting discussion. Um, astrozoic. We'll I
1: love that. That's cool.
0: Yeah, yeah I, 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 I've never heard, heard that the, term. The uh, oh,
3: that the, tell, the most telling moment for me in the evening, we were there, I don't know, two, I, I kind of wasn't tracking the time, but a little over two hours, I'd guess. About and uh, at one point he referenced uh, recent uh, recent headlines about the United States having shot down that satellite, uh, that one spacecraft that was supposedly a problem. And the, here comes the telling moment. I said, I don't believe that, that it really happened. He can't prove to me right. it did, and I can't prove it didn't, and no one really pushed back on that. And I was like, except yeah. for sitting next to you, I believe. Uh, well, you didn't really push back. He just—it was like, oh, yeah, I, we really can't convince you. And well,
0: yeah, I, you know, uh, that that, that, uh, that would have been interesting, I think, if people had tried to prove that it, uh, uh, right, that, that it had happened. But one thing that says is that group is definitely open to uh, a, a wide variety of. A wide variety of perspectives. However, as I as I mentioned to you on the drive back from there, um, guess uh, <laughs> Anybody else hear beeps on the line?
1: I did. Yeah, so, I heard it. Uh, somebody was trying to make a
0: call. Okay,
1: on one of um, these lines.
0: <laughs> on somebody's somebody's line. Um, uh, oh, what I was going to say was, uh, great discussion. Uh, a, a, a great group. Very serious thinkers. Very interesting ideas. But would you agree with this, Michael, that maybe a bleaker outlook about the future than we tend to take here? Certainly, a bleaker outlook of
3: the present. I mean, (laughs) you know, it's just—it's misery and horror everywhere you look. Except that maybe in the future we can get into space and then it'll all be okay.
0: Yeah, uh, there was there was some of that, and also just I I felt a lot of well, things are going to get worse before they get any better. That we've got to kind of pay our dues
3: before we. I, I sense that too. Although I will say that the uh, the speaker, the the guy who did the presentation on the Astrozoic era, did acknowledge that uh, pioneers generally are uh, pretty pretty uncomfortable and um, sacrificing a lot. They go without whatever it was they had where they pioneered from in order to be the pioneers wherever they're pioneering to or at. And uh, I think he got that part spot on.
0: Oh, I think I think that I think that part is probably. Uh, there, there's probably a good deal of truth to that, uh, b- but uh, I think just the notion that we've got a lot of misery in the world and we're going to have a lot more before things get better was was an idea that kind of stuck with me uh, to the extent that I thought, well, you know, tonight on the program I really want to articulate where we stand on those issues. So that, Stephen, uh, wrapping it back to my intro this evening is why I spent a little more time on uh, what we're all about here on
1: Fast Forward Radio. It's so, a good idea any time, though.
0: Yeah, so that's my shout out to the Boulder Future Salon. Thanks for reminding me what uh, what I think about uh, where the future is going. Okay, Michael. So we're gonna uh, send you off into the chat room. You uh, you keep an eye out for interesting comments and uh, let us know. We'll do. All right. Well, at this point, I'm gonna waste no more time. We are going to bring out our guest, author Jim Elvidge. Holds a master's degree in electrical engineering from Cornell University. He has applied his training in the high-tech world as a leader in technology and enterprise management, including many years in executive roles for various companies and entrepreneurial ventures. He also holds four patents in digital signal processing. Beyond the high-tech realm, however, Elvidge has years of experience as a musician and a writer and a truth-seeker, and he merged his technology skills with his love of music and developed one of the first PC-based digital music samplers. And he also co-founded Radio Amp which was the first private-label online streaming radio company. For many years, Elvidge has kept pace with the latest research, theories, and discoveries in the varied fields of subatomic physics, cosmology, artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, whew, and metaphysics anomalies. This <laughs> unique knowledge base has provided the foundation for his first full-length book, The Universe Solved, which I had the privilege and pleasure of reading this week, which presents astounding evidence... Uh, he will tell us that our reality may be under programmed control. So, Jim Elvidge, welcome to Fast Forward Radio.
2: Thank you very much, Phil. It's great to be on the show.
0: Well, we're, we're delighted to have you. And uh, why don't we start off just by uh, taking a step back, and let's talk about the origins of the universe solved. Um, What got you interested in these ideas uh, to begin with?
2: Well, uh, as you mentioned before, a lot of these ideas have kind of been bouncing around my head for years. I've I've read a lot of books on uh, various things. I tend to read more nonfiction than fiction, uh, tend to read a lot of science and and geeky things, but uh, i guess Us not too. A, but <laughs> yeah we're not sure into that <laughs> not too long ago i uh, i remember picking up a book called um, the holographic universe i don't know if uh, any of you guys have, have read that one by michael talbot and that was actually that was actually the first book that i read that kind of opened my mind to the possibility of you know, a, a real explanation for some sort of anomalous occurrences, things like, you know, telepathy or, uh, you know, why people might see things that other people might not. Um, and, you know, thinking through that, I, you know, I've tried to keep an open mind about, uh, you know, different uh, uh, physical and metaphysical anomalies um, and, you know, continued my sort of layman's research over the years. And uh, I started writing a book, I guess it was about 2005, um, it was the 100-year anniversary of Einstein's special relativity, and uh, like everybody else that year, everybody was kind of taking pot shots at poor Albert, and you know, I started writing a book about relativity and what limits there might be and things like that, but um, in doing the research, uh, I came across a thought, and, and I can't claim it's an original thought, it certain, certainly was something I hadn't Read before, but the idea was that um, the way quantum physicists describe our reality is very, very similar to the way uh, a computer program works and the way computers model uh, objects um, in a virtual reality program. And just making that sort of analogy, I thought was very striking. I started thinking, "Gee, you know, I've seen the movie The Matrix. I've read some of these, you know, uh, some of these science fiction books and." you know, speculated about, you know, are we living in a simulation? And I started thinking, is it really possible? And pretty soon I came up with a bunch of categories of evidence um, that supported the idea. And so I decided to write a book on that instead. (laughs) And that was the the genesis of the the universe solved.
0: Okay. Uh, In in, uh, putting together your ideas or maybe in researching the book, have you come across a book called The Intelligent Universe by David Foster?
2: No, I haven't. Um, but I'll write The reason that I down. ask,
0: uh, my, my wife and I were shopping for furniture this morning. Uh, we were out looking for a coffee table, and we were at a, uh, I think it was a Lazy Boy uh, outlet. And uh, you know how in furniture stores they leave books lying around sometimes to make this verisimilitude that you're like in somebody's living room or right. something like that. You know, they just buy these old books in bulk. And I just happened to be strolling past this coffee table, and it has this book on it. And it's called The Intelligent Universe. And I'm like, well, that's an interesting title considering what I've been thinking about all week. And I pick it up. The Intelligent Universe by David Foster, written in 1975. Um, a book about the idea that the universe functions much like a software program. And, you know, I came back home later and I was just thinking about this. I Googled it and this book is a very obscure um Hard to get even on amazon or, or something like that there 's not a lot of reviews of it i don't i don 't think it went much of anywhere but i couldn't help but think about what you wrote about coincidences and and synchronicity i mean what what are the chances that I happen upon a book from thirty three years ago that uh, that that happens to be on the
2: same topic while i 'm out looking for um, furniture that in and of itself could be evidence of a programmed reality. <laughs> Our confirmation bias. I get the uh, Lazy Boy store, I guess. Is yeah, somebody's somebody's letting you know that we're onto something.
0: <laughs> Interesting. So, with that in mind, could you just briefly outline your hypothesis for us? Uh, make make the make your case in, you know, a couple hundred words or less that we're living in a computer simulation.
2: Okay, so um, th- there are a couple kinds of simulation that we could be living in. The the sort of standard. Uh, um, you've, you know, you've got implants in, you, in your brain and you're being, you know, shown a, a different version of reality. That kind of simulation is one of them. Um, and, you know, the, the the state of technology in terms of uh, brain implants and sensory stimulation um, and so forth is kind of at its infancy right now. But there have been a lot of experiments. Uh, MIT teams, Caltech teams have done some experiments where they can um, put electrodes in someone's uh, brain, read the, uh, the signals generated by uh, sensory stimuli that they um, apply to monkeys and even humans. So they show them a picture, and they can determine within 80% what picture they've shown to them just by reading what comes out. So that's, you know, that's evidence that a computer could determine what your sensory stimuli is. Um, in the other direction... Uh, camera signals have been fed into the visual cortex uh, for blind people to allow them to see kind of rudimentary light grids, and the uh, the technology there is also growing kind of at Moore's law rate. Uh, the light grids have uh, increased um, by a factor of four, I think, over the last couple of years in terms of the number of pixels. So it's possible to generate um, a simulation, um, or you know, the beginnings of one, into somebody's brain. Um, a lot of neurobiologists say that it will ultimately be possible to write information into the brain, to actually write memories into the brain, even though um, it's considered that, that memories are uh, distributed throughout the brain, um, they are able to, to find out where particular memories reside and therefore eradicate them or write new ones in. So although a lot of these ideas are sort of at their infancy now, you know, if you take Moore's Law in, in, into account, it's just going to. It's just a matter of being perfected at some point. So the possibility of generating a simulation, um, you know, in somebody's mind is is definitely real. Um, but I mentioned that's only one one possibility. Another one uh, could be the physical manifestation of reality itself. So in other words, it could be that what we're seeing, everything that that. Um, we interact with, the stuff that we interact with, is manifested under program control in some way. And that sounds a little bit more outlandish, but when you think about the state of the art in nanotech, uh, you realize that that's not that far off either. So, for example, um, nanotech pioneer Storrs hall had a concept of a utility fog, which is uh, the idea that you have uh, millions or billions of uh, invisible nanobots flying around Um, They can be completely transparent to you, you can walk through them, they can sense your presence, Um, but under program control, because they could all be networked together, they could generate um, any kind of um, uh, wavelength of light for different colors and they could link their arms or they could, um, you know, push against you so for example you may think you're in a, a particular room and then all of a sudden a brick wall appears or a sofa appears or you're at the push of a button your room could turn in, into a from a dining room into a bedroom um, and uh, these concepts some people uh, Ray Kurzweil and others think that they're not far off they're maybe only 30 years off Uh, So, again, it's a matter of scale. If you can create a room under program control, you could create an entire reality under program control, ultimately. So these are sort of the feasibility arguments to it. Um, Once you've accepted that it's feasible, then you kind of look for what evidence there might be. Um, Okay, uh, before you go to the evidence, let me just say, this is Fast Forward Radio on the Blog
0: Talk Radio Network. We're talking with Jim Elvidge about his book, the future, excuse me. The universe solved. If you have a question for Jim and would like to join the conversation, you can call us at 347-215-8972. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead.
2: Oh, no problem. So um, the book presents four or five different categories of evidence, and one of the first ones is one that's been around for probably almost ten years now. Um, Nick Bostrom, a uh, philosopher from Oxford, wrote a paper called The Simulation Argument, and there are some people who who claim that you know, there was some prior work to his that was very similar to that. Um, I don't know, but I, I know that that was the the, the thing that I first read, and, and I was struck by it. And basically it says that uh, there's three options for the future. Um, at some point, we will be able to create these, these simulations that we're talking about where you can, um, you know, Create a computer-generated reality, um, either via you know virtual uh, virtual reality goggles or via implants or uh, nanobots, uh, you know, in in your brain. Um, so if that can be done, then he says one of three things um, can happen, and he defines the word posthumanism as the the point that you you reach when you can perform these simulations. So either We consciously decide not to pursue this avenue of technology, and I think we can kind of throw that out, because when have we ever consciously decided not to pursue something that was possible? Um, The the second possibility is that we will never get to that point because we'll destroy ourselves uh, in the process. Uh, That's sort of the pessimistic view. And then the the third view is we are probably already in a sim because at that point we'll run millions of them, and the odds that we're in the single non-simulation is you know very, very small compared to being in one of the millions that we will eventually run. Um, so you know, by definition, by his sort of logical argument, um, the optimistic point of view is that we're living in a, c- a simulation. The pessimistic point of view is that we destroy ourselves in the next twenty or thirty years. Um, so, so that's just sort of a logical uh, category of evidence. The one that that I really like is the the quantum mechanical uh... evidence quantum mechanics says that when you get down to um, a very small uh... granularity uh, ten to the minus thirty six meters that space is actually quantized and w- what this means is you look around the room everything looks continuous you can always find a a point in between two other points that you're looking at and and that's the case when you look through a microscope or an electron microscope even you know the smallest things we can see we can actually image Um, atoms now, but there's no evidence that there's anything um, discrete about those. However, that's that's 20 orders of magnitude larger, an atom is 20 orders of magnitude larger than uh, the limitation of quantum mechanics or the so-called Planck length. And so what the physicists are telling us is that when you get down to that level, space itself doesn't exist in between two points. Space is defined by the points, and there's one point, and then there's a point you know, a plank length away from there, and there's nothing in between. And that's certainly, you know, kind of a striking concept, but what else works that way? Uh, Well, you know, a computer program works that way. Um, Your monitor is based on pixels. There's nothing in between the pixels. And in a virtual reality program, take a, uh, you know, a gaming program or something where a tree is modeled, um, the model of that tree is, is going to have a limitation to its resolution. It has to. If it had infinite resolution, it would take infinite memory to, to uh, store, infinite disk to store, and it would be infinitely expensive. So it has to have finite resolution. And time works the same way. Again, according to physicists, when you get down to 10 to the 43 43rd seconds, time isn't continuous. It kind of chunks along, like ka-chunk, 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 every 10 to the 43 43rd seconds, which they call a jiffy. So, again, uh, a computer works the same way. It, it, nothing happens in between two clock cycles of a computer. Um, from one cycle to the next... Uh, logic units get filled with bits, stuff gets written out to memory, to disk, to peripheral devices, or whatever. Um, but in between the two clock cycles, absolutely nothing happens. So the analogy is really almost perfect. And and that, you know, so, so you ask the question, if our reality really works that way, what's the reason behind it? And I can't think of one other than it's under program control. So that's... Now- Sorry, sorry, go ahead. Uh,
0: Let let, let me ask a question about that, though. Does there have to be a reason? What if the universe just works that way, right? I mean, isn't that uh, always kind of the ultimate answer to these physics questions, anyway? If you know, why was there a Big Bang? Well, that's how it works, right? Sure,
2: and, and I think that's the difference between philosophy and science. Science will describe how it works, and philosophy is looking for the answer to why it works. And, and, and this, you know, my book is a little bit more philosophical, I guess, than, than scientific, in that there really there not any scientific proof of this idea. Um, and I think, you know, a great next step might be to come up with experiments that could lend more support to either the programmed reality or a non-programmed reality one way or the other and, and help, you know, kind of narrow it down. But this is more of a philosophical thing. Um, you know, one might might make the statement that, you know, the, the universe could be continuous. There's no reason for it not to be continuous. And it seems just sort of gut feel that it might be, it might make more sense for it to be continuous. Um, why quantize? Why quantized at that level? Why? Why not ten to the minus seventy second or or ten to the minus sixteenth? You know, it's still way below our limits of perception. So why at that level? Um, you, you see what I'm saying?
0: Absolutely. Let's 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 uh, come back to the philosophy in a minute. Let's let's look at the science because um, Stephen and I were talking before uh, before the program. Uh, w- w- one of the things I enjoyed most about the book is um, the summary that you give on uh, History and Current Thinking in Physics and Cosmology. Uh, I I have to compliment you. I think the best short description of string theory I've read anywhere is this book. Oh, thank you. Really enjoyed that. And you go into M-theory, brain theory, you talk about the Big Bang, the inflationary Big Bang, the many worlds hypothesis, the inflationary fractal multiverse, and then uh, you talked about Julian Barber's uh, kind of timeless configuration space that... uh, that he presents. So, uh, I guess the question is, why isn't one of those, or or some combination of those, sufficient to explain the universe? Why why do we need something else on top of that?
2: Um, because I, I guess there's nothing. There are still a few things uh, that we haven't talked about that none of those uh, those those ideas or those uh, theories explains very well. Julian Barber's, I think, comes pretty close. Uh, to explaining what we've just talked about in terms of the quantized nature of the universe but what's what's behind it um, you know it's sufficient for scientists to say you know here's how it works and this you know this is uh... you know, and, you know this is the resolution of it and things like that um, but i guess what kind of drives me is what's behind it and if if you think that there might be something behind it um... all of a sudden some of these other anomalies and uh, you know, the curious nature of the finely tuned universe uh, starts making a little bit more sense. It does kind of tread into the, you know, religious, intelligent design area, um, which scares a lot of people, but, uh, you know, I, I just basically followed it where it led. You know, one thing I would expect if we
1: are living in a simulation is uh, that we'd find evidence that the universe increases its resolution upon observation um you know in a video game if i if i'm if i'm walking through a 3d video game and there's a tree or something uh it might have you know it's, it's it has a resolution of a certain level until you zoom in on it and then and then the uh, computer goes to work uh uh giving us a resolution that's higher uh, do you, i mean in in your studies have you come across uh, evidence of that
2: um, no, I, I haven't, but um, it's, it's something I've thought a lot about. I mean, um, is it possible that before we had microscopes, the resolution of uh, of reality was much uh, coarser than it was after we had microscopes? Um, you know, you, you could sort of imagine that... Uh, I mean the way the way the dynamic resolution works that you just described, as you get closer and closer to a to a tree or to an object, um, the pixelation goes away because they'll pull in a different model that will model a cell or model something smaller. Um, imagine that uh, you know in a um, you know a, a game, say uh, a, a massively multiplayer online role-playing game, that people were not given the ability to to get too close to something and then somebody figured out how to do it or maybe the programmers allowed them to get closer because they put a patch into the game <coughs> excuse me that, um, that, that gave the dynamic resolution that allowed them to look closer into things so, so you could imagine a scenario where the game may have gone on for some period of time at a course resolution but because the programmers decided it was uh, the, the, uh, the users were getting bored or they were um, starting to ask a lot of questions or they were starting to invent, you know, find ways to, to build microscopes out of the crude devices that they had at their disposal in that game, that, you know what, we better put a patch to this game and increase the resolution of it. And given, you know, a sufficiently sophisticated um, technology, that isn't really that hard to do it's interesting uh, does that Thanks.
0: does that relate to the idea um and 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 tell me if i read this wrong in 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 the book because i was talking with someone about this at dinner last night and i may have i may have, uh, I may have uh, overstated the case but is, is it possible that before the 20th century our universe uh functioned under uh Newtonian physics and uh, quantum physics only kicked in when we started looking at that level
2: well um yeah you know that that certainly could be possible um you know what, I mean,
0: one of the, is that an implication of that is is that uh, is that uh, something that uh, is that the equivalent of looking at a tree and it getting a uh, uh, higher resolution as you get closer in a game
2: yeah i think it is and uh, another aspect of quantum mechanics is the whole observer effect um you know traditional uh, copenhagen what they call copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics says that um you know, you've heard of the Schrodinger's cat experiment that something doesn't happen until it's actually observed. It's that's a similar effect in a computer program as well. Uh, if you imagine a uh, a room that's designed that nobody's ever been in, uh, again, I'm talking about in a uh, in a in a program or in a game, and and somebody figures out how to finally open the door. It's only when they open the door that the inside of that room has to get rendered. Um, it nobody needs it up until that point so all of the experimental evidence for the observer effect um, may actually be very good evidence for the programmed reality effect. That's interesting. This is
0: Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network. We're talking with Jim Elvidge about the universe solved. If you'd like to join us you can give us a call at 347-215-8972. Now I, I need to give a disclaimer before the next question because um something uh, something I meant to mention earlier is that we often talk about paranormal phenomena on Fast Forward Radio but we do it in a very lighthearted and uh humorous and, and uh skeptical kind of a vein we we we're, we're normally pretty skeptical of anything that lies outside of mainstream science okay so we're going to uh, we're going to have to be uh for, for the time being scully to your molder here okay now <laughs> In in the book, you talk about UFOs and Bigfoot and past lives and psychic phenomena. You you, you devote a good deal of time and energy to those subjects, and you ask your readers to at least keep an open mind about them, but it's never entirely clear where you stand. So are you convinced that these phenomena are real, or um, do you approach these subjects with some measure of skepticism?
2: Um, I approach everything with a with a measure of skepticism, and, and I fall into the same, you know, because of my training in engineering and science, I, I fall into the same, uh, I, I guess, you know, category as most people that I need to see something um, in order to believe it. So, the, you know, the fact that I haven't seen a UFO means that, you know, I'm, I'm skeptical that they exist. However... 150 million people claim to have seen them. And even if you discount 90% of those, you know, with the usual uh, litany of, um, uh, you, you know, trumped out reasons for, for what they've seen, they've seen a star, they've seen, you know, swamp gas or whatever, you're still left with a lot of unexplained things. You you know, there are uh, fighter pilots who have seen things that are unexplained. There are astronauts who claim they've seen things unexplained. I mean, there are, you know, Presidents and prime ministers of, uh, of foreign countries who have claimed to have seen them, and you can't discount all of these uh, all of these reports and all these observations. Um, all I'm saying in the book is that it, it's very possible to generate a UFO experience in a programmed reality. It could be the ultimate explanation for anything that that you know falls into the category of uh, of an unexplained phenomenon. Um, you know, if you know much about software, it's not hard to generate something that defies laws of physics in a program all all programs, all gaming programs have um, uh, a physics engine uh, these days. and you know it's it's not hard to create something that um, that the, the program is put in there, it can be, you know, generated to appear and disappear, and and to look any way they want it to look, and defy the the laws of that physics engine that the characters are subject to. Um, God mode. Exactly. <laughs> um, and and yeah. in, in fact, you know, it wouldn't even be hard to uh, put something in place that some people see and other people don't see. So. You know, the the, the sky is the limit when you talk about a programmed reality, uh, you know, kind of scenario.
0: So, um, in the book, you also talk about psychedelic drugs, LSD, and uh, there's another one, D, DMT. Is that right?
3: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: yeah. Um, tell us how that fits into this uh, whole discussion, and and. Uh, by way of uh, explaining that to us, give us the give us the shocking truth about Santa's reindeer. That was uh, <laughs> that was the point where I had to put the book down for a few minutes. I have to.
2: Yeah, have it's funny to, actually. Uh, uh, move me away. A colleague of mine opened up the book one time and opened right to that that page, and he goes, "What have you been smoking?" <laughs> <laughs> I think it's what have you been eating? Right. right. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, again, the. Um, You know, the interesting thing about this is that there have been some controlled experiments uh, on hallucinogenic drugs, and there were were experiments back in the 50s and the 60s, and then basically the government said, no, can't do that anymore, Um, you know, it's too dangerous. And uh, Rick Strassman uh, is an individual who was able to get um, federal approval or FDA approval to conduct an experiment using um, DMT, which is a chemical that exists naturally in the brain Um, and you know in in his research he found that it existed in the brain um, at high levels at certain times Uh, one time was during um, you know uh, inception another time was during death or near-death experiences Um, and it also tended to be high at three in the morning for some reason Uh, and he used this to attribute um, a lot of you know kind of Paranormal phenomena that people experience as being perhaps due to high levels of DMT in their brain. Um, but what he did was um, you know conduct a controlled experiment with a number of uh, of people I, I think it was in Arizona, University of Arizona perhaps, and uh, basically you know wrote down all of their experiences and most of them, um, I wouldn't say all, but most of them describe um, the feeling that the reality they they jumped into. Um, under the influence of this drug was more real than the reality that they normally uh, live and experience. And, again, I'm not saying that that's certainly conclusive evidence. It's just interesting.
0: Very interesting that you would have that uh, that that perception because um, you, you don't hear that normally about um, psychedelic drugs, that where they're taking you is some kind of... Uh, fantasy land right they're taking you to a cartoon world or something like that but but in this instance and i think you mentioned that uh, uh sting had had some tea down in brazil or something like that that uh, he he chose right. to spent 40 pages of his book talk, talking about that the idea that that the the the, the curtain is lifted and now be, under the influence of this drug you're actually seeing past whatever the uh, uh the the illusion of what this world is and you're seeing
2: the real world back there yeah exactly and the interesting thing was that the the experience that people have had and, and he was one it's actually I think a little bit trendy now for people to go down to the uh, uh, the jungles of the Amazon and hook up with a shaman and drink this tea called uh, Ayahuasca tea um, but the, the interesting thing is that the, the same effects have occurred through shamanistic rituals, um, via, uh, you know, American Indians and, um, you know, Aboriginal groups, uh, around the world, um, either with or without assistance from you know various plants and things so sometimes uh, drumming has has been uh, reported to bring it out or extreme dancing and other kinds of shamanistic rituals where people will experience what they claim is the true reality and and be able to get in touch with um, uh, you know other realms and things like that and the thing that that is interesting is that there a lot of their Experiences sound similar, and and the, the similarity. There have been books uh, written on uh, on this effect, and you know you know kind of curious about what it's all about. Some people speculate that um, that DMT or the shamanistic rituals may actually turn off the thing in your brain that prevents you from experiencing the true reality because it's too frightening, and instead allows you know allows you to. Um, experiencing, experience the artificial one that's put in there. Um, it's kind of like the you know the guys in the Matrix had the artificial reality, but they took a drug to uh, um, uh, to remove it. So, you know that's you know that is that is some somebody's theory. Uh, I thought it was an interesting uh, you know bit of evidence for uh, for the possibility that there is another reality behind everything, although not necessarily a programmed one. Uh, and another bit of evidence that we haven't touched on yet is just the whole fine-tuned nature uh, of the universe. I mean, there are some... Oh, wait,
0: before we go there, because I did promise a listener we would touch on this, you've got okay. to tell us about Santa's reindeer.
2: Um, that one, uh, I'd probably have to dig back into the book to to remember some about it, but I think uh, there there are some uh, individuals who believe that a lot of the, the history of uh, Santa Claus can be traced back to uh, sort of pagan uh, rituals with some of these hallucinogenic compounds, and uh, you know I'll, I'll I'll leave it for people to either read the book or uh, look up things like um, uh, there's a book called Breaking Open the Head, and uh, I think if you just google those words google uh, mushrooms and santa claus you'll probably find all kinds of uh... <laughs> google
0: mushrooms and <laughs> listeners just google mushrooms and santa claus right, you you'll,
2: know, you'll find all kinds of
3: things <laughs> it will
0: open your mind it will blow your mind absolutely right. okay sorry let's talk about the universe being fine-tuned
2: sure now, now this is, this one i also find to be uh, pretty interesting there are some uh, uh, universal constants that, that have to be um, at a certain level that cancel out all the vacuum energy in the universe to a part in 1 in 10 to the factor, uh, 10 raised to the power of 115, which is just a, you know, ridiculously perfect um, uh, tuning. The expansion rate of the early universe, they say, has to, have to be accurate to one part in a billion, or it would have, you know, if it was off by more than that in either direction, the whole universe would have either flown apart or it would have uh, immediately collapsed. Uh, a tiny difference in the ratio of the electric field strength to gravitational field strength would have prevented molecules from forming, and so on and so on. There's, you know, a dozen of these kinds of things that are in the million or billion, um, you know, type of uh, range for probabilities. And when you factor them all together, you don't add them up, you multiply them all out. And that gives you, like, an astronomical um, you know uh, probability or improbability that we would happen to have the physical constants and and uh uh you know structure that we have today so the traditional theory behind this is comprised of two things one is uh something called uh, the parallel universe theory which uh, is in you know a couple different forms and one form is the uh, the quantum mechanical form, which says that every instant that somebody observes something, they actually the, the, the whole universe is a new universe is spawned, and in one universe, the one um, one decision was made, in the other universe the other decision was made, and we're talking, you know, billions, trillions. I mean, there's not even a number to describe it. zillions of times a second, this could happen. So it's an astronomically huge number of universes that exist in parallel in this so-called Hilbert space. Then you couple that with something called the anthropic principle, which says that um, because there are so many universes that exist with so many different, um, uh, you know, characteristics of of physics, so many different um, constants of physics, most of them are all benign. Most of them can't support life. Most of them probably can't even support matter. But of course, the one that we can does because we wouldn't be here to observe it otherwise, so it's a combination of this you know wild idea of many 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 parallel universes and the anthropic principle argument in to my way of looking at it that's that's a very complex uh, solution to the problem and You know, if you invoke Occam's Razor, which says that the simplest solution tends to be the more accurate one, um, you know, what sounds simpler? The idea that there are zillions of universes created every second um, and that we just happen to be in the one that um, all the the constants line up perfectly, or there's something behind it, there's a program behind it that, that, you know, has designed it this way. Is that a rhetorical question, or do we do we should we pick one? Stephen, um, what do you think? I'd, I'd be interested to hear what your thought is. <laughs> hmm. I, I, I'll go with uh, Occam's razor on
1: this one. I guess I, I, I'll go out and going out on limb on that, which I okay, guess puts so me squarely in. Uh,
0: more, what's that? More likely that it's a designed universe than many worlds and the anthropic principle, in, in yeah. line with what Jim's saying. Okay, that's how I feel too. I I had to punt. I was giving myself more time. I don't know. I, I'm so fond of many worlds. I hate, to, uh, I hate to give it the short shrift in favor of another theory.
2: <laughs> oh, well, it's interesting that many worlds can also exist in the parallel universe theory. Um, just a, a very simple example, if, if you're familiar with World of Warcraft or EverQuest or any of these um, you know, massively multiplayer online role-playing games, they run on different servers, and people can be in a world in one server and, and have you know, a whole different set of uh, individuals, monsters, whatever that they're interacting with, if they jumped into a different server, it'd be like a parallel universe. So the universe could be an instance of the program, a parallel one could be another instance of the program, and perhaps there's even ways to jump from one to another. Unix allows ways to, to jump between processes, and, uh, you know, whatever is dr- is driving this thing could be at a technology level that's so far beyond what we think about, I mean... we we think in terms of probably a 20-year horizon. We can kind of envision the direction that things are going 20 years, 30 years. When it gets to be 50 years, it's pretty fuzzy. But if you allow that there could be intelligences out in the universe that are hundreds of years, thousands, millions of years um, beyond ours, then their technology is something that we can't even imagine. It's it's like that Arthur Clarke uh, quote um, sufficiently... Uh, advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic right right exactly
0: so how about this how about uh we're uh, in a simulation uh, in a simulated universe within a simulated universe within a simulated universe and i 'll just keep repeating that uh, a couple dozen times Finally, you get up to the the actual real universe and it 's part of a multiverse that has all the parallel universes i mean in fact. Although Occam's razor, as you as you suggested, uh, would would cause us to pick between one or the other, there, there's no reason to, to to say that one precludes the other.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And 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 I think that I mean one of the one of the, the things that people will often bring up is, you know, okay, this this idea does explain certain things or has the potential to explain certain anomalies, but at the same time, what's behind that? And that's not the purpose of the book. I'm not trying to, you know, determine where the real reality came from, I'm, I'm trying to make some sense out of the universe that we perceive. Um, and, and so that's, you know, that's, that's what the purpose is. Let's talk Easter eggs for a second. Um, you know, when, when
1: games are designed, often the author will put in something to kind of wink at the audience or maybe in a way to sign his work or whatever. I mean, should we be looking for Easter eggs uh, in, 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 uh, in the universe?
2: Sure. Um I don't know if you ever read Contact, uh Contact uh, by Carl Sagan had this great concept at the end of the book where um once pi was calculated out to a sufficient number of values, the numbers when either I don't remember if they were converted to binary, lay it out whatever, on some kind of a grid, right? Yeah, they, they formed a circle and that was yeah. you know that would be indication that would be an easter egg. Um but one might say that um you know, highly improbable coincidences are Easter eggs. And, and, and one of the ones that I, that I like to use is, uh, it was in a book by um, uh, Martin Plimmer and Brian King called Beyond Coincidence. There was a girl in the U.K. named Laura Buxton. She was 10 years old. She wrote her name on a balloon and released it from her garden. Um, 140 miles away, it lands in another garden of a girl named Laura Buxton who was 10 years old. that is so bizarre not only that when you read that
0: it turns out nine out of ten girls in the UK were named Laura Buxton (laughs) yeah
2: and you know I I thought that the story by itself was interesting and then somebody sent me um, you know the original article about it and I found out that these two girls had uh, they they each had a hamster they each had a a cat I mean there, there were like a million other coincidences and you know, I, I find the whole idea of is very interesting. And if you, if you get onto the skeptics' blogs, they will often say, uh, well, coincidence is just a law of large numbers. You know, there are so many things that, that don't happen that could that there's bound to be coincidences now and then. And you know, I understand that, and I understand... Uh, statistics and and things like that. However, there are these certain things that happen every once in a while that just seem like they're beyond that, and it's a really hard thing to model mathematically. Um, and I I've actually searched for people who have tried to prove or disprove one way or the other whether these sort of astronomically uh, you know unusual coincidences fall within the realm of statistics or not. And there really hasn't been any conclusive answer to that they just feel like they're um they're easter eggs
0: this is fast forward radio on the blog talk radio network we're talking with jim elvidge about his book the universe solved talking about whether we live in a computer simulation or some other kind of simulated universe we're going to be going a few extra minutes this evening so there's still time to call if you'd like to join the conversation you can call us at 347-215-8972 and i think at this time we'll check in with michael anything going on in the chat room michael questions for jim
3: um, we don't have any specific questions for Jim, and um, we we're sort of off on our own, you know, closely related parallel tangent. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Okay, we got the <laughs> the mini
0: world hypothesis being demonstrated here in the uh, in the chat room this evening. Okay. Well, let us know if uh, let us know if anything comes up.
2: Okay. Well, um, if I could just jump in real quick, one thing uh, you brought up was the idea of the Easter eggs. Um, if you were a programmer of a reality, you wouldn't want to necessarily uh, give away a slam dunk Easter egg that that made it, you know, completely obvious um if you were trying to maintain the illusion of the reality you'd give just little hints right I,
1: yeah that's true I, I I've heard the argument that uh uh one thing you know we should be careful of is that we don't completely give if we are living in a simulation and we discover it you know for certain that we are then that could be a simulation ender right yeah so we need to be careful about that I, you know i I think that's pretty silly but uh, what's your thought on that Jim?
2: Um, well, well, you know, one of the things that, that I've thought a lot about is how do we know, and this is, you know, kind of indirectly answering your question, but how do we know when it started? Um, you know, again, if you think about the technologies that we're experimenting now and that could be perfected in, in, in another reality, um, if you can upload memories. Uh, the way Kurzweil say, says we're going to be able to in 30 years. If you can upload memories and download memories, um, then you know theoretically it's possible to create a reality that just started five minutes ago. And you know all that stuff that you thought uh, happened when you were a kid is just implanted in your head, and it has, happens to be synchronistic with all of the things that are implanted in other people's head who you you. Uh, interacted with when you were a child, and, you know, same with the, with, with the documents that are in libraries and other evidence of, of past history. So the question is, when when did it start? Um, could it have started very recently, or could it, could it have started a long time ago? I tend to think it's, it's more the, um, you know, if, if there is something to this idea, I tend to think it's more the physical manifestation of reality, and it happened a long time ago, because I, I just have a little hard time with the whole reason behind it you know why would we you know want to um be in a simulation you know what what are the motives behind it and that surprises me a little bit jim we have a caller let's uh bring our caller in
1: hello
0: hi Hi, fast forward radio hi how are you good welcome to the program do you have a question for jim elvich
4: yeah i was uh wanting to talk about these easter eggs for a minute i I thought that, uh, from what I understand, uh, Young and synchronicity; uh, these Easter eggs are available for people that go searching for them. And that, in other words, if you look for them, uh, you'll begin to notice them more and more often, according to Young. Which uh, a lot of psychologists, I know a psychology professor who won't even discuss Young they uh they run from the topic um so what i'm thinking is um is that uh is that well um i uh, is that i've lost my train of thought well
2: i i, I think um uh, yeah if i could jump in i i think that's a, that's an excellent uh question and i think that's um that's one example of it young is controversial because he's talking about things that are outside the, you know, sort of um, accepted norm of, of science. Um, but the whole idea of sort of cosmic unconsciousness that he, that he uh, described, um, you know, is an example of something that could be, could have an explanation in, uh, in a programmed reality. So, for example, imagine that, um, you know, again, using a gaming analogy, uh, imagine you're playing a game, uh, and, and some people do this with uh, World of Warcraft. They play a game where they, they interact with each other traditionally by, by typing. However, uh, some of the guilds in that game um, allow you to uh, you know, put on a headset and have a communication channel which is completely different um, over the Internet so you can actually talk to the other people in your guild. So from the perspective of other people in the program, boy, it seems unusual that these two are in in sync, you know, or that these people are are working in sync. They seem to know what each other is doing. So there's back channel mechanisms, um, you know. There's just an example of one that you know is possible. I can certainly imagine others where if if our minds are connected to a you know quote matrix of sorts that we may be given uh, hints of information, um, you know, without sort of hitting us over the head with a hammer, we may be given hints of information yeah. that allow us to, to experiencing these, these uh, synchronistic types of things that Jung was talking about.
4: I, re- I remember him, uh, I remember what I was going to saying. and it ties into what you were just saying, that uh, uh, he, he warned against sort of trying to interpret these Easter eggs like a, a psychic would, that they had particular meaning. He thought that when you begin to experience the synchronicity more and more often, that it simply meant that you are where you're supposed to be. That was the interpretation that he 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 advised people to take away from these synchronistic experiences instead of trying to read them like a particular sign. And that sort of ties into um if if it only means you're where you're supposed to be it sort of relates to the simulation uh, scenario that, that you're painting where, um, well, uh, perhaps you're, you know, uh, in sync with the program. <laughs> so, no, anyway. Very
2: good. Very good. I agree. Um, caller, uh, could you identify yourself?
4: Yeah, I'm I'm Harvey Harvey Barnes.
1: Oh, uh, hi Harvey. We, we've yeah, Harvey has uh, been a chat room participant for a while, haven't you? That's right. Okay, great.
0: Great to have you on the program, Harvey. It's great to hear your voice. Uh,
4: thanks for taking my call. I'll uh, try again later, and I'll try to be less nervous next time. <laughs> oh,
0: it's fine. You did great. Oh th- great thanks. Uh, thanks for calling.
2: Thanks, Harvey. Um, there, there are a couple other things uh, that rem- his uh, question reminded me of. I, I don't know if, uh, you know, Steve and Phil, if you're familiar with the experiments that were done at uh, Princeton, the Princeton Pear Project, um, re- you know, regarding uh, collective consciousness. They they put uh, these random number generators around the world. I think there are 70 or so of them. And they, they called, they referred to them as eggs. And they noticed that the... Um, The random number generators tended to be more in sync during times where uh, the, you know, worldwide population was focused on something. So uh, a tsunami, an earthquake, uh, 9-11, things like that. There were jumps in the synchronization of these random number generators. It's just... It's just something that's out there. Nobody has an explanation for it. Um, and another example of this is, uh, if you're familiar with any of Dean Radin's work, um, he wrote a book called The Conscious Universe, where he, he took all of the sort of paranormal experiments that have been done over the year, the years, applied scientific rigor to them, and came to the conclusion that their results were well beyond statistical significance, so that there's like a subtle thing going on, you know, along the lines of the Easter egg, um, uh, and, you know, and it's a, it's a subtle thing, but it's definitely happening.
0: Well, you know, and uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was about uh, the, the the references in the book to research into uh, psychic phenomena, and and uh, definitely there are um, more and less, I guess, respected and credible. Kinds of research that go on in, in that field, I, I, I would guess across the boards, parapsychology doesn't get an awful lot of respect from the hard sciences. Right. But when you talk about uh, work that Dean Radin has done, or when you talk about the Princeton anomaly research, that at least has has garnered some level of credibility and and some respect. And, and you look at those and you say, well, it, it would appear that there's something there. Uh, when, when, when I look at uh, when I look at the results from, from what they've done at Princeton, you think, well, th- there's something going on there anyway. Right. But uh, at that point, I, I, I can't help but ask, well, um, can't we just conclude that, the, that therefore, psychic phenomena are part, you know, have some natural explanation, they are part of the universe? Uh, why does that necessarily speak to a higher level of reality?
2: Oh, it doesn't. Uh, you're absolutely right. It, it could It could very well be something that, Um, we just haven't done enough research on to understand why. But I think it's a really interesting one because we think that information propagates via electromagnetic waves, and we think that you can't exceed the speed of light because uh, the only thing that propagates in a a vacuum is electromagnetic waves, and and it travels at the speed of light. Um, So if there's another communication mechanism out there, uh, you know, it would be very, very interesting to find out what, its propagation speed is, and again, like you said, not necessarily evidence of, of a programmed reality, but you know, just something that um, you know does does imply that the reality we think we we have is is a little different than what what's really there.
0: And if if that uh, phenomenon somehow works through something like quantum entanglement, it could be that its speed is instantaneous, but still within this universe. I mean, still just something that an odd. Ob- Quirk of how the universe happens to function,
2: right? Certainly could be. Um, one of the things I find interesting is is just sort of watching the the path of of science, scientific research. It, it, it seems to follow the the path that you might um, you know expect something to follow, given that there's a programmed reality, and it's a little hard to to explain. But um, you know, one example was. I think it was the neutrino that was discovered um, it was predicted then it was discovered short time after that um and then it was predicted that it might that it might have mass to kind of explain another anomaly and um the evidence that it had mass was discovered in Soviet labs, but not in American labs, and the Soviets believed that. Um, that the ne- neutrino probably had math, and it was a logical explanation for this. But the American labs didn't. Now, you might attribute that to—I uh, forget what the effect is—you uh, know, the effect of expectation effect of, of the experimenters. Um, but but it also feels an awful lot like there's you know there's something behind it, sort of driving the um, the evidence a patch. Realization, you know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) Like a a patch has been uploaded. Exactly. (laughs) That's fascinating. Very interesting.
0: All right, this is Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network. We're talking with Jim Elvidge about his book, The Universe Solved. Uh, We're going to keep the lines open for just a few more minutes, and if you have a question for Jim, you can give us a call at 347-215-8972. Now, let's get into... um, the possible explanations for who the programmers are. In, in, in the book, you talk about, basically, it's either going to be Earthlings, us, or it might be artificial intelligence, or it might be uh, extraterrestrials, or it could be what you refer to as the gods, mm-hmm. uh, basically these spiritual beings who, who truly live in a... Different uh, plane of existence, and and would account for the kind of religious explanations for for reality. Um, what about the uh, possibility that um, that we're intelligent beings, and that we're living in a simulation, and that we're part of that simulation, but that we don't have any particular seat of consciousness other than that—that that, that we we just that's who we are and we live there do you, do you think that's a possibility or do you tend to think that if this is a simulation that that our existence must have some other manifestation someplace else
2: yeah I, I tend to think that there's another manifestation somewhere else and, and again you know I'm not I, I can't use the word believe or convinced or anything like that I'm just looking at, at the evidence and, and what I see this is something that just kind of makes sense to me um, so you know, I, I would tend to uh, to agree with that, and I also I differ a little bit from a lot of the transhumanists in that um, they tend to believe that an artificial intelligence will have the same kind of consciousness that we will have. That consciousness is a is an artifact of complexity of of the computational mechanism of the brain. Um, I tend to think there's something behind it. I I, I feel that you know I don't care how. Complex a computer program is going to be. It's never going to be conscious the way I'm conscious, and and I, I just you know I I can't describe that in any better way than than I did in the book. But it's just something that that I believe and that, that I feel um, is evidence of you know it kind of narrows down some of the scenarios um, of of how the uh, programmed reality might play out.
0: But but the but the the basic kind of um, if not. Uh, belief, but bias. Then is that um, there that human consciousness is something transcendent? Is, is that a fair way of putting it?
2: Yes. Okay.
1: Um, um oh, go ahead. I, I was just thinking. I was just exploring that possibility that you know that um, let's say there is a, a, a an other that we are connected to. Um, um, it, you know, it's your thought then that uh, even if we had a, uh, uh, if we developed a computer that was just as complex as us, that whatever you know drives us, call it a soul or whatever, uh, could not inhabit then the machine at all.
2: Right, and I, I think that it's certainly possible that you can at some point upload, you know, effectively the state of your mind, maybe you know your memories. To save them off, to archive them off, I could, I could, I could imagine that. But I don't believe that you could transfer, you could, you could um, willingly transfer your consciousness to another machine. I believe that it's possible your consciousness could decide to do that, um, and that might be the, you know, the solution to the whole thing. That at some point when machines are sufficiently complex, our consciousness itself might say, "Hey, you know what? I'm going to make the jump between." Um, you know, wet organic humans to the the silicon-based machine here, just to see what it's like to uh, to have consciousness within the machine. Um, I could I could see that, but I I don't think it's something that you can assume. Uh, just the same way, I don't think you can assume that, you know you know how we're doing a teleportation now. We're doing teleportation of atoms at. at further and further distances and molecules and ultimately will be tele- teleporting matter. Well, what gets teleported is, is the, the data that describes the original um, matter. Uh, you know, if, if it is possible someday to teleport humans, I don't believe that you can assume that your consciousness gets teleported as well. Uh,
1: Phil and I, I think we've both agreed in, other, in past shows that uh, we're not going to be the first to step in the transporter.
2: Uh, Absolutely. The question is, is you know, when when other people do it and they say to you, "Oh, I'm fine," will you believe them, and will you then step into the transport?
1: Uh, I might say to myself, "Well, yeah, you're fine," but the guy that stepped into the transporter at the other end is long gone.
2: Right. Or (laughs) exactly. Or 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 would you allow the possibility that that person who stepped in the transport is a you know, in gaming parlance, an NPC, a non-player character. Sola's automa- uh, automaton be, or whatever. Yeah, they could be saying whatever they're programmed to say.
3: Well, if, if as, as
0: as long as we're willing to fall back to a purely solipsistic standpoint. Anybody can get in the transporter, but me. Is the right. Line, right, right. You know, what, what happens to the rest of you guys? Okay, I don't know. I, I don't know that you're conscious now, for sure, right? So,
2: exactly. You you can't know. <laughs>
0: yeah. So so you know, if you want to go through the transporter, okay, by me. But uh, I, I I'm not as sure that uh, that I'm ready to take the leap. But this kind of all goes to the whole problem of the whole problem of consciousness. We don't really know what we mean when we when we talk about consciousness, and and it seems like the more I read about it, the less certain i've become although i i have to say i hope that uh that that you're wrong on the on on the idea that uh that silicon can't evolve to become like us in in experiencing consciousness the, the way the way we do that uh, either whatever's back there behind us might be behind them too if, if that's actually required or if it is just complexity that, that 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 uh that they can eventually reach that point and experience what what we're experiencing but uh
1: it, it well i I'd say uh, we make a wager because uh i th- I think we live in a day and age where we're likely to live to see either it it come to pass or it it'd be shown that it's it's extremely unlikely to ever come to pass right well you know, I don't know, know, know,
0: know that it will because uh, we we could have a highly uh conscious seeming computer out there. how would you know if it was conscious or not i think is the is is is, is the real problem
2: it it gets us into the whole uh During test, right? Right, right. Um, It's interesting. I have a uh, a, a little device that's um, a chatterbot made by um, AI.com on my website, and uh, I have named him Morpheus, and and people talk to him. And uh, I've taken a poll uh, and asked people what they think of the intelligence of Morpheus. And I've had a, a very surprisingly number of people, and I'm sure they're just being a little bit flippant, that say that they think he's smarter than most humans they know. But um, overall, the average IQ that the uh, that the users um, have given me is 84. They think he's he's got an IQ of about 84. So it's you know we're we're coming along. <laughs>
0: that's pretty good.
2: It 84, is. not bad at all.
0: Certainly, it is not uh, bad. that's a higher a higher IQ than I'd give the typical uh, IVR system that I have to deal with. Oh, absolutely. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, well, I we're getting we're getting pretty close to our time here. I think we're just about going to have to wrap it up. Uh Stephen, any uh, any final questions?
1: No. I, th- I we've covered a lot of ground, Jim, and I I uh, I want to thank you for coming on the show um and uh, and it's it's a prov- very provocative book um and I I'd recommend it to anybody. The, the title is The Universe Solved.
2: Thank you. It, it's been a a pleasure being on the show. Uh, you guys have asked a lot of challenging questions, and it's been uh, been you know, very interesting. Um, I'd leave you with one thought, if I may. Um, uh, a physicist from Stanford, Andre Lind, uh, was once quoted as saying, on the evidence, our universe was created not by a divine being, but by a physicist hacker. <laughs>
3: wow. <laughs> well, there you go.
0: That's that would explain for all the cheesy Easter eggs like UFOs and Bigfoot. And exactly.
2: <laughs> Anything could.
0: Well, uh, continued success to you, Jim, and uh, we hope uh, maybe at some point in the future we'll uh, we'll have you back on the program.
2: Be glad to be back on. Thank you very much, Phil. Thank you, Stephen, and thank you, thank Michael.
0: You. Thanks,
2: on. Jim. All right.
0: Okay. Well, that was fantastic. Um, one of uh, one, one of the funnest uh, discussions I think we've ever had on this program. Yeah, it was enjoyable.
1: Yeah. Um, I uh, the the music I guess we got for tonight we're going to play some exit music. Uh, uh, Phil, what do you think? Uh, let's go with the serenity music tonight. Absolutely. What do you got? Okay. Uh, this is it's it's a it's a pretty geeky song. A uh, guy by the name of Dan uh, uh came out with this uh, right obviously right before the movie Serenity came out, and uh, so uh, obviously a big fan of Firefly. So we're going to give this a play.
0: Okay, well, we'll look forward to some music uh, themed to Serenity. Once again, thanks to our guest, Jim Elvidge. Thank you, Stephen. We'll look forward to listening to the music and checking the show notes. Uh, Michael, thanks to you and for everyone hanging in on the chat room. Also, special thanks to our caller and to everyone who listened. We look forward to being with you all again on the next Fast Forward Radio. Until then, live to see it.